0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis
1: and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
0: Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us to discuss this critical topic of U.S. nuclear modernization. My name is Patty Jane Geller, and I'm the Policy Analyst for Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense here at the Heritage Foundation. I'm joined today by Senator Deb Fischer, who we have here on screen. Senator Fischer represents the state of Nebraska, home to Offutt Airfoot Base and the headquarters of US Strategic Command. She's the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee on Strategic Forces. We're thrilled that she's able to take time out of her busy schedule to give us her insights on where the US is going with nuclear modernization. So we're going to start off today's event with some comments from Senator Fisher on the political backdrop for nuclear modernization, and then I'll move on to some questions. Um, So Senator, whenever you're ready, please start us off. Okay, well, thank
1: you for that introduction, Patty Jane, and to Heritage for hosting this event to discuss the future of nuclear modernization. For the last two administrations, there's been a robust bipartisan support for modernizing our nuclear deterrent and the infrastructure on which it depends. While we've had spirited debates, members of both parties have repeatedly joined together to provide the necessary resources for this effort to move forward. And I expect that this Congress will continue to do so. Senator Reid, who's the new chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, has explicitly endorsed modernization. And for the last two years, amendments in the House of Representatives to reduce funding for modernization programs have been turned back by strong bipartisan majorities. I expect this support to continue for a few reasons. First of all, these programs have bipartisan roots. In fact, the vast majority of our modernization effort programs such as the Columbia class submarine, the replacement ICBM known as GBSD program and the replacement cruise missile known as LRSO. Those all began under the Obama administration. The Trump administration embraced these efforts. And so we have almost a decade's worth of testimony from both Democrat and Republican administrations affirming the need for these programs and nuclear modernization more generally. I think the fact that both President Obama and President Trump agreed on this issue carries weight with Congress. And this leads to a second reason that I believe congressional support is likely to continue, which is the merits for modernization are very compelling. Systems age, their effectiveness declines, and ultimately, they will reach a point where they need to be replaced. The vast majority of our nuclear systems date to the height of the Cold War. And the way that we've been able to sustain them, it's been pretty remarkable. We've had three generations of a single family that have flown the B-52s, a platform that will be almost 100 years old by the time it retires. We're going to get over 40 years of service life out of our Ohio class submarines and that's longer than we ever have operated a submarine before. The same is true for the Department of Energy facilities that sustain our warheads. This work is carried out across an infrastructure complex, half of which is over 40 years old. Over 30 percent dates to the Manhattan Project and the early Cold War era. And since production ceased at Rocky Flats facility in 1989, we have not had the industrial capability to produce plutonium pits, which are often referred to as the core of a nuclear weapon. We've relied on legacy pits and an impressive suite of scientific capabilities to establish confidence in our nuclear weapons continued effectiveness. These accomplishments They are a testament to the ingenuity of our workforce, but at the same time, they reflect the urgent need for recapitalizing the bedrock of our national security. Life extensions only go so far, nothing lasts forever. Ultimately, these systems will age out and replacements must be ready before this happens, or we'll have a gap. And our deterrent capabilities. At the rate it takes to design, develop, and field systems of this level of complexity, and again, we're talking about nuclear weapons, that work must be done now. I think most members of Congress understand these basic principles. Of course, there's a debate about how exactly we go about modernizing. We've had that debate in one form or another, Every year that I've been a member of the Senate. And I expect that that will continue to be the case. Now, the Biden administration's views on these issues aren't clear. And we're seeing a renewed push from outside groups to abandon some of the foundational elements of the modernization effort. So I expect this year's debate will be particularly significant. In advance of that, I think there are two key things that we need to keep in mind. First, the modernization schedule has no room for delay. As I mentioned, these are nuclear systems. They take a long time to develop. And previous decisions to delay and defer modernization have taken all the slack out of the schedule. We are now facing the very real prospect of systems aging out before replacements are available. Admiral Richard, the STRATCOM commander, has testified that many of the modernization and sustainment efforts we're carrying out, quote, have zero schedule margin and are late to need, end quote. That means we do not have the luxury of putting things on hold while various policy reviews are conducted. I know some opponents of these programs are calling for the administration to do exactly that. And I think to some people, that might seem sensible. Why shouldn't the new administration just freeze things where they stand, take a year to study things, and only proceed after it's done its own analytic work to validate these programs? That seems innocent, but it is not. Again, because of the past decisions to delay these programs. Hitting pause now, it would break the modernization schedule and result in systems aging out before their replacements are delivered. Proponents of a pause suggest it would allow for further consideration of modernization choices, but really, it would effectively make those choices for us. And that's why it's so important for us to keep this timeline in mind. The other factor we cannot lose sight of is the changing threat landscape. I know others have made this point, but it's worth repeating because it bears out how sharply the geopolitical situation has worsened over the last 10 years. The 2010 Nuclear Posture Review stated, Russia is not an enemy. And is increasingly a partner in confronting proliferation and other emerging threats. End quote. No serious person would say such a thing today. And since then, both Russia and China have invested heavily in their nuclear forces. Russia is developing entirely new nuclear capabilities and arming dozens of dual capable weapon systems ranging from short range ballistic missiles to torpedoes to landmines. Meanwhile, Admiral Richard recently stated that China is likely to double, if not triple its nuclear stockpile. And they are on its way to becoming a peer nuclear competitor by the end of the decade. This has implications for our deterrence requirements and policy implications as well. In particular, it's notable that this investment has happened while the U.S. exercised a restrained approach to its nuclear posture. I think the best summary of the lesson we can learn from this comes from President Obama's Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, in 2016 when he was visiting Offutt Air Force Base in my home state of Nebraska. When discussing nuclear modernization, he said, quote, Over the last 25 years, we made only modest investments in basic sustainment and operations. But while we didn't build anything new for 25 years, and neither did our allies, others did, including Russia, North Korea, China, Pakistan, India, and for a period of time, Iran. So we can't wait any longer, and we also can't operate under the mistaken assumption that our own recapitalization will stimulate others to invest because the evidence is just the opposite. They have consistently invested in nuclear weapons during a quarter century pause in US investment," end quote. I think that's a very valuable observation and something we must consider, particularly as we hear calls to reduce our forces or cancel modernization programs. So why don't I stop there, Patty
0: Jane, and we can move on to questions. Excellent, that's great, thanks so much, Senator. Um, So I'll jump right into my my first question. Um, As you know, President Biden recently released his interim national security strategic guidance. It stated that we will take steps to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in our national security strategy while ensuring our strategic deterrent remains safe, secure, and effective. What's your reaction to this?
1: You know what, um, what struck me is the way that this repeats past rhetoric. The, mm-hmm. the passage is almost exactly what President Obama said in his statement in the 2010 Nuclear Posture Review. And I see a couple, I see a couple problems with this. First, the world's changed a lot since 2010 in fact, it's become far more dangerous. So when we keep hearing the same talking points, I think that suggests maybe a a lack of appreciation for the changes that we've seen. Uh, It also, I think, ignores some of the lessons that were made pretty clear by the end of the Obama administration. As Secretary Carter um, was pointing out in the quotation that I just read, while the US was reducing its arsenal and the role of nuclear weapons, Russia and China, they were going in the opposite direction. Um, But as as you said in your question, this is interim uh, guidance. So I I hope going forward, we will see a strategy that is based on a a clear-eyed view of the threats that our nation faces and it takes into account what we've seen um, from this approach in the past one of the things that uh, one of the many things that uh, secretary mattis said that is so quotable is we need to see the world as it is and not as we wish it to be
0: yeah excellent i think that's very important so there's discussion about whether the Biden administration will conduct a new nuclear posture review. Do you think that this would be wise?
1: I do, I do. I think um, particularly if the administration is, is considering changes to our nuclear posture, but also because as we all know, threats continue to evolve. And that's part of uh, part of the old question about whether strategies should drive budgets or or budget should drive strategy. Um, I think it's it's important to have policy reviews happen and um, strategies decided before changes are made instead of the other way around. Um, The NPR is an important way for the administration um, to be able to think through its approach, to bring in uh, civilian officials, military leaders to produce that strategy and then have um, transparency in conveying that to congress and and the american people so i i think it's it's also important that our allies um, have an opportunity to speak to what this strategy is is as well we've we've seen the last um, uh, several administrations do this and i think it's been helpful Uh, I don't think using the budget process to make decisions about our nuclear posture um, is appropriate, especially in an abbreviated uh, budget cycle. Um, But let let me be clear, we shouldn't be conducting an MPR um, to pause nuclear modernization. That, that, um, That should not happen modernization already is just in time, um, if not late, in need. And so we don't have the luxury of pausing or delaying these these important programs.
0: Yeah, excellent. Uh, You mentioned in your answer working with our allies and partners. So I want to ask more about that. Uh, The Biden administration has been emphasizing uh, the importance of our allies and partners and talking a lot about expanding their role in U.S. foreign policy. How do you see this playing out in nuclear policy?
1: Well, I think that's a good sign. Um, I think it it uh, should mean that a, a greater focus on um, on our deterrence commitments um, are often overlooked, and our NATO allies and our allies in in Asia uh, all depend upon that U.S. nuclear umbrella. Um, they should look at the approach. That we have demodernization as a reflection of how seriously we take that responsibility. A lot of times we um, we forget about the commitments we have to our allies when it comes to nuclear deterrence. Uh, we don't express that enough, uh, and I and I think it um, it it would only be positive for us to be able to do that. Um, you know, a lot of times we hear people say that china can meet its deterrence requirements with only a few hundred weapons so why can't the u.s well you have to look you have to look at the fact that um, we are supportive of over 30 other nations who depend on our our nuclear forces uh, for their protection and china doesn't offer any any of those guarantees. Uh, There was was a recent article in in Foreign Affairs by former Secretary uh, Chuck Hagel and others about this subject with our allies, and I think they really underlined the importance of ensuring that that our extended deterrent commitments uh, remain credible. And that's something that these nations uh, depend upon. that, that our deterrent has the, the technical skills to develop uh, nuclear weapons on their own, even even those nations. Um, mm-hmm. We want to be sure that that this deterrent serves our goals for nonproliferation, and and I think it's I think it's very important that that we um, don't cast any doubt on that to those who are dependent upon it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you bring that up. And as another issue, outside groups are also calling for Biden to declare a no first use policy, meaning that the United States pledges not to use nuclear weapons first in a conflict. How do you think our allies would react to this?
1: Well, I think we, we should all um, remember and take note that a no first use policy it's been it's been rejected by every president uh, including mm-hmm. president obama three members of the president's uh, cabinet uh, secretary carter Sec- secretary Kerry, secretary Moniz, uh they they um, reportedly opposed um, uh, that as well in 2016. Uh, This is something that our allies, I think, are very apprehensive about and the advice that we hear consistently from our senior military leaders has been not to adopt such a policy. A couple years ago, Congress um, required an independent study of this and that was um, published in January by the Institute for um, Defense Analysis. And I would recommend that to the audience. It really looks uh, at this question in detail. And it and it concluded that this would do more harm than good. So if the administration is considering changes to our uh, de- declaratory policy, I really hope they take a look at this study and they engage with our allies. Um, there's a very compelling case there. There's bipartisan support in, in Congress uh, for maintaining our current approach and uh, the administration, I would hope would uh, take note of that and be supportive of
0: it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, one more question on this topic of allies. I, w- I want to quickly bring up the United Kingdom. It's recently released security review announced that the UK's nuclear stockpile ceiling would be increased to 260 nuclear weapons. It had previously been in the process of being reduced from uh, 225 to, I think, 180. And as a result, it's being accused of starting an arms race. What do you think about this? Well, the United Kingdom
1: is a very strong ally of ours. And uh, their independent nuclear deterrent is a, is a very critical element of uh, NATO's security. And it contributes to our security as well. I read a report um, saying that we made a decision in in 2010 to reduce our arsenal, and the world has changed. Threats have grown, and that decision's um, no longer appropriate. And I don't disagree with that. Um, so I'm surprised by, um, I guess, the amount of criticism we've seen uh, over the week. It it's more criticism more criticism of our um, strong ally than i've seen of russia or china for their nuclear build-ups those are far more significant than what the united kingdom has has announced so where um i would just question where's the outrage when uh, president putin announced a bunch of uh, new nuclear weapons in 2018 and then we you know we're seeing russia and china jump on the bandwagon here and and also criticize the uk um, but i'm glad you brought up the way the way arms race is being used in this as well i think that's very reckless um, when we look we all know that the threats change uh, governments have a primary responsibility of protecting their citizens so i i think it's reasonable to debate the wisdom of their actions but to say everything's an arms race um, i think is i think is unserious and it's being applied selectively to certain countries um, but not to others that that i would say are uh, are participating in in an arms race
0: yeah i think that's extremely well said senator i also hear a lot of accusations that the u.s is starting an arms race even as it moves forward with our modernization programs like the lrso uh, the replacement for our air-launched cruise missile and uh, like you said it doesn't seem to make sense given what uh, russia and china are doing um, so anyway i'm gonna sw- uh, switch gears now to the topic of affordability Critics often complain that the price tag of nuclear modernization, especially as a flat budget top line becomes likelier. Um, What do you think, Senator? Is modernization affordable within a budget constrained environment? Yes, yes.
1: We have to to remember that nuclear weapons are still um, less than 7% of the DOD's budget. And only about half of that is even connected to modernization and the rest goes to um maintaining our our current force nuclear deterrence is the number one mission of the department of defense we have had um, the past four secretaries of defense say that and secretary austin has agreed with that and that means when you're putting together a budget it's the first thing it's the first thing that goes in I think many times we see this discussed in the opposite way, and to me that's backwards, where funding for everything else is assumed necessary, and at the end of the day the only choice we have is is either to raise the defense top-line spending or we cut nuclear weapons. Or sometimes you hear about how we have to cut nuclear weapons in order to fund um, increases in other capabilities, like like in cyber or um, AI, but what both of these arguments are essentially saying is we need we need to cut our top priority in order to fund everything so fund fund other things that that are out there um, that's that's exactly the opposite of what it means to prioritize. If you prioritize something, that's the first thing you fund nuclear modernization is not cheap, but it's necessary. And another uh, Secretary Mattis saying is that America can afford survival.
0: Yeah, and you also hear some argue that these uh, capabilities you mentioned, particularly cyber, can be substituted for nuclear weapons. And that idea is used to justify redirecting funding to those areas. Can you comment on that? Well,
1: you know, cyber capabilities—they're important. And prior to chairing the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, I uh, chaired the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And at that time, uh, we had uh, the responsibility for overseeing the Department on their cyber activities. But I think that this idea of substituting one for the one for the other. Um, it's not, it's not wise. I recall a, a conversation that I had uh, on this in a hearing with General Dunford when he was uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs and his testimony I thought was very, very clear. He said uh, cyber capabilities cannot be substituted for nuclear capabilities. They're fundamentally different. It's a um, it's a shame that he couldn't elaborate at that hearing, uh, but obviously discussing what we can't and can't do through cyber, and comparing that to our nuclear uh, capabilities isn't isn't possible in an in an uh, unclassified environment. But I think that that statement people should keep that in mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that does make it challenging to assess these proposals, but, but I do see how it would be difficult for cyber capabilities to achieve the same deterrent effects as uh, nuclear weapons, like you were saying. Um, so going, going right back to the budget, what about non-DOD spending? Um, last year, the President requested and Congress provided a significant increase in funding for the National Nuclear Security Administration, uh, the NNSA. Um, why do you think that the NNSA needed such a big increase?
1: You know, they're facing the same challenges that the Department of Defense faces. Um, You have a nuclear complex that's old. um, And since, really since the end of the Cold War, we have delayed and deferred modernizing it. Uh, At the same time, it's being asked to do more, not just extending the lives of our warheads but also all the scientific work that comes with certifying our increasingly aging uh, arsenal to make sure it's effective. Uh, I think one other thing to keep in mind is that the budgets that are um, submitted on behalf of the NNSA they've struggled I think I think to reflect what's needed for modernization. They, um, when you look at the projections for future spending, that's included uh, with each budget submission. They've left out a lot of activities. Um, consider, for example, um, pit production. That's a requirement for the NNSA to produce those plutonium pits, and it's been there a long time. As uh, part of the um, modernization commitment that President Obama made in connection um, with the New START Treaty in 2010, this isn't new. And we knew that the NNSA was going to need to do it. And we also knew it was going to be expensive. But at the end of the Obama administration and then the early part of the Trump administration, um, NNSA was still developing its plan for how, how they're gonna meet this requirement. So it, they really didn't have a plan, so they couldn't predict costs with it. So the, the budget didn't include uh, uh, any kind of spending for that pit production. And um, that was something I, I discussed with General Klotz, um, the administrator at the time. And he was, he was very forthright about it. He was candid about it. Um, they They finally finalized their their strategy, and then the costs were included and I think um, I think that is is one point you can look at for the increasing uh, budget.
0: Yeah, that's really useful to know. um so basically, what you're saying is that some sometimes these increases aren't all that they seem to be.
1: No, they're you know they're not at all. We you know we shouldn't act like it's no big deal. I mean this this is very expensive, and NSA is being asked to to do a lot more. Um, they're going to need budget increases in order to meet those requirements. Um, but that's um, that's that's something that has to be done you know, it, it, it costs less to study pit production than it does to uh, rebuild uh, the capabilities uh, that, we, that we're going to uh, need.
0: Right, makes sense. Um, so just quickly staying on this issue of pit production, um, I think you also mentioned in your opening remarks that the U.S. is the only nuclear state that, that does not have the capability to produce plutonium pits. Why is that significant?
1: Well, it's very significant. Um, all of our warheads entered the stockpile that um, during during the Cold War, and we replace certain components of that through through the life extension programs. Um, but we still still are relying on these legacy pits, and plutonium breaks down over time. So the process is slow, but there there will come a time when our weapons. Well, they're just not going to work um, the way they should and as i did say in my opening remarks um, we need to act now to prevent that from happening Uh, that means we have to stand up production capability that we haven't had in 30 years and producing enough pits to replace those that are in the stockpile before we begin really to lose confidence in their effectiveness and that's That's the technical argument. But but when I talk about this um, with people, with constituents, um, what I I think really hits hits home with people is that North Korea is capable of manufacturing nuclear weapons, but the United States uh, actually can't. Hmm. And I know that some will say, you know, you shouldn't be making uh, that comparison. You're just, trying, you're just trying to alarm people. Um, but I disagree with that. I think, I think we've become very, very complacent in this country. And I believe we have to bring um, a greater sense of urgency to this problem that we have. If the United States is serious about remaining in nuclear power, uh, we have to have pit production capability. Because
0: nothing lasts forever. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to hear you talk about confidence in our arsenal, in our, our nuclear weapons arsenal. Um I think that's something that's probably not discussed enough. Um and I so I see we're running up on uh, the clock here, but Senator, if, if you have a, a few more minutes, um I I wanna get to asking you about the ground-based strategic deterrent um quickly. Um sure. we're seeing renewed opposition. Um, We're seeing renewed opposition from critics of nuclear modernization uh, focused on GBSD, uh, the program to replace our 50-year-old Minuteman III ICBMs. Um, What's your assessment of the debate over this program?
1: Well, there's been a very active uh, debate over this program, and I appreciate the effort that uh, Heritage and others have made to try and and correct a lot of the misconceptions that are out there. when I hear people use terminology like hair trigger," for example. Um, I support the GBSD program. I think everybody knows that. We have heard consistent testimony across the last two administrations that this program is absolutely necessary. We've been discussing this program annually. At, at our uh, oversight hearings on SASC. And based on the arguments that have been presented, majorities in Congress have supported it. They, um, we've provided about um, $2 billion since um, 2015 for this program. I am not aware of any change in the threat that we face. Or the reliability of the current um, Minuteman system that would justify either delaying or completely halting the GBSD. And I know a lot of opponents have gathered around this idea of canceling GBSD and extending the life of the Minuteman uh, system. When we when we look at um, admiral richard's comments earlier this year about how it's not it's just not feasible um to do that i think i think we can um, really really look at this with in a more realistic way i think there's uh there's very little i can add to what what he said and we don't have time to talk through all the arguments on the topic, but I'll make, I'll make one observation. When the Air Force studied extending the Minuteman, it found that this would actually be more expensive in the long run than building a new missile. And I know um, those who support this approach will argue that it's cheaper in the near term, but deferring costs isn't the same as saving money. in in 2012, the decision to delay the Columbia class submarine by two years, uh, it pushed activities beyond uh, the five year budget window and that, mm. that created an appearance of saving money. But the Navy estimated that this actually increased the total program costs by billions of dollars. And it left, um, the program with, with no margin for further delay or, or error in, um, the development schedule, so I think um, I think those are food strategies, and um, that's why we have to make sure that um, modernization continues.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I think that's a great point. Um, and, and you mentioned uh, Admiral Richards' comments on this, um, which I thought were really compelling. I think he said that some of the the drawings for the Miniman three um, are so old that those who can understand them aren't even alive anymore. Yeah, you know, I've, um, I've
1: had uh, I've had the opportunity to um, be in the, be in the Senate and have met and worked with uh, four of the combatant commanders at Stratcom, from General Taylor, Admiral Haney, uh, General Hyten, and now Admiral Richard. And I believe each one of those uh, individuals was the right person for that position at just the right time, uh, that we needed them there. And uh, I believe that is especially true of Admiral Richard. I have uh, such admiration for him and respect. He he puts the facts out there for people. Uh, he, he lays it out. He's, he's, uh, he's pretty straight about it. And uh, he is the person we need there, and we should be listening to him
0: yeah good point i I totally agree with that um admiral richard has been great um well senator i feel like there's a lot more we to discuss especially on uh, this gbsd topic but it looks like we're um over time here so i I think i feel like that's probably a a good note to close off on um so and and we we want to be respectful of your time i know you have a busy schedule um so I, i wanted to thank you again for for joining us in this event and taking the time it's been a really great discussion
1: well, thank you, Patty Jane. This is uh, this has been very good. I hope I hope the audience uh, it stimulated some some thinking and conversation, and uh, we can move ahead with an important program here for our country.
0: Excellent. I think so too. Thank you. Thank you.